Hey, Prime members, you can listen to That Spooky early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY. Welcome to That Spooky. I'm Johnny. And I'm Tyler. And this is a weekly podcast that's coming for your wake, Barbara. <laughs> Getting snatched on this good day. We need to ventilate the lace and add a second wig to the back of it for volume, Barbara. <laughs> so I guess, speaking of wigs, we should just talk about Drag Race. Yes, we should just talk about Drag Race. And this week was the episode for us i know i feel really heard and represented it was mm-hmm. the monster ball yeah so if you're not acquainted with what the ball episodes of rupaul's drag race are basically once a season they do this challenge where the queens have to create three different looks to walk down the runway so basically the best part of drag race gets multiplied by three yeah so we had 11 queens walking down the runway so we had 33 looks and they were all halloween inspired yeah so all high points no low points let's just talk about it category one trampy trick-or-treater yes so my favorite campy trick-or-treater was definitely nina west i loved her audrey too with the little venus flytrap deities and the little venus flytrap paws it was just good it was fun it was campy i'm into it yeah i would have to say that my favorite was uh, probably brooklyn heights i just liked that she kind of did you know like a classic mummy no pretense about that a nice bridget nielsen pulled back 
black blonde shortcut. Yeah. And she was on point like the ballerina that we all knew she was. So that was really cool. It was really elegant. You thought she was on heels at first, and then, bam, that camera hit it, and you realized she was on point, and it made her walk in such, like, an ethereal kind of ghostly way that it just really sold the whole illusion. You know what I mean? Yeah, I loved that one, too. That was so good. Yeah, so then category number two, which, please, favorites? Okay, my favorite for the witch, please, was definitely Evie Oddly. Yes. She gave us classic witch with a twist, and that is what I expected from this challenge. I wanted to see witch immediately and then have it kind of twisted and pulled and poked in a different direction. And I just thought she looked really fucking fierce, and it was really super cool. Totally. I really liked what Evie was bringing to the runway. I will have to say, though, I was a little bit sadly surprised that nobody did, like, a Feruza bulk in the craft kind of look. Yeah. Yeah, or, like, an Angelica Houston in the witches kind of look. But we can get past that. My high point for the Witch Please category would have to be Nina West. Yes. I loved that reference. Yeah, so she gave you full puritanical woman wearing a bonnet wearing a black and white dress with applique flames at the bottom giving me complete campy salem witch trials realness i was loving it yep I loved it. Yeah, and then category number three was MILFs, Monsters I'd Like to Freak. You know what? This was the one category that was a little bit disappointing for me. I guess if I had to pick a favorite, it probably would have been Brooklyn Heights, even though I was not a fan of that snake that she just straight up wrapped around her head. Like, she was going for Black Widow, but, like, I wish she had have had, like, eight eyes or, like, maybe that Black Widow symbol on it. She was going for Black Widow, but she ended up at Francesca Fiore from Kids in the Hall. Oh, my God. She did look like Francesca Fiore from Kids in the Hall. Yeah, and kind of looked a bit like Angelica. Houston, but truly looked like Scott Thompson as Francesca Fiore. Oh my god. Yes. For that reason, absolutely my favorite. I can take that. Okay, well, I would have to say that my favorite from MILF's Monsters I'd Like to Freak would have to be Scarlet Envy. I'm pleasantly surprised with her this episode. I was not a fan of her witch look, but Mm -hmm. she did Creature from the Black Lagoon, and she made it fashion, and it was scrappy. It was fun. I love a hooded drag moment. I love a masked queen, a little bit of Lee Bowery up on the runway. Like, it was just what I was looking for from this challenge. She pulled from a horror reference that I really love and that Mm -hmm. like really freaked the shit out of me as a kid Mm -hmm. so yeah that was kind of it for me i was really hoping that evie oddly was going to give us some pins sticking out of her with a voodoo doll look she didn't give it to us but she nailed it in all the other categories that dinosaur look was so (laughs) good that was so fun that was a performance like have my five dollars have my ten dollars yeah no take my 20s we'll see you in a month when you perform in toronto i'm ready to clear my bank account yes uh no that's a check i'm not gonna cash no (laughs) i mean it wouldn't take long yeah no, that's hyperbole. But I will say this episode also gave us Elvira on the judges panel. Oh, my God. Yes. I love Elvira. She is a true witch. Like, she looks exactly the fucking same. Yeah. She is completely fucking brilliant. I love Elvira. Please bring her on my TV more and more. And let's give her the respect that she deserves. Yes. But when you bring her back onto the TV, just make sure it's not the search for the next Elvira. Do you remember that reality TV show? That was a great 
great show, and I will stand by that. <laughs> okay. You could stand alone on that one. Fine. I will stand alone Scarlett O'Hara style. <laughs> Perfect. Now, speaking of standing alone, I was standing in McDonald's the other day. Okay, so we're done with Drag Race. <laughs> we're talk. done with Drag Race because I have to get this off my chest. So, long story short, I think I witnessed a murder confession. Oh, do tell. Mm -hmm. So I was standing up in McDonald's waiting for my free fries because the only thing that I like about sports right now is the fact that whenever the Raptors win or whatever, I get free fries. That is my kind of sport. That's a thing? That's a thing. It's been a thing. Just in Ontario, if the Raptors win, everybody gets free fries at McDonald's for like 24 hours. Oh, cool. All right. Anyway, standing in line waiting for my free fries. It was pretty busy. And then I hear a loud voice behind me. And it's this man and he's not disheveled he looks fine but he's looking at a police officer that is sitting at one of the tables like probably on his lunch break and just like very loudly in front of everybody in the restaurant he's like hi officer i had a really bad day but i killed somebody please don't arrest me i didn't mean it please don't arrest me and what did the officer do he just hushed him and shooed him away what <laughs> so like i don't know what was going on there all i witnessed was a man telling a police officer that he murdered somebody didn't mean it was having a bad day and then the officer just shooed him away do you remember what the man looked like i do so i'm gonna keep my eyes on the news yeah. and i'll let you know if he ever ends up in the headlines girl mark that on your calendar that's insane yeah and so the officer was just like all right well back to this big mac <laughs> yeah i guess so the officer was just like shh, 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 and then just shoot him away legit oh my god and he's like i have bigger and better things to take care of on my lunch break right exactly holy shit all right well i feel real safe living here in toronto <laughs> i just have to say mm -hmm. well i'm glad that you made it out of that situation unscathed mm -hmm. with my free fries that's a good day all right, well, I've got one more thing to add to spooky gay bullshit before we move on. Okay. This is pretty intense. So have you ever worked with somebody who you've just thought, you could really lighten up, you know what I mean? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, not currently, but in the past, hell yeah. Yeah, you know that person that just feels a little bit too uptight for their own good, and you just wish there was some way to get through to them. Mm -hmm. Well, a 19-year-old guy in Missouri in the U.S. Mm -hmm. figured out a way. So he works at an Enterprise rent-a-car, and he had a problem with two particular co-workers. Right. So he basically just thought that they were wound way too tight for their own good. Right. And he decided to take it upon himself to dose their water bottle with LSD. What? Yeah, now from my understanding, he actually went along and dosed everyone in the office's bottles with LSD because he really <laughs> just thought that everybody in the workplace was a little bit too hung up in their own bullshit. Mama. Yeah, his manager discovered him with a little eyedropper around water bottles in the break room uh -huh. one day. And then a little while later, two of the employees reported having headaches. And then suddenly everything was getting a little bit shaky. So the manager decided to call an ambulance and also call the cops because of what they saw about the water bottles. Right. Yeah. So when the police 
came to the Enterprise Rent-A-Car and questioned the guy who was walking around with the eyedropper. He openly admitted that he dosed them with LSD. <laughs> he said that they had way too much negative energy. Were, yeah. yeah. Okay. So it was therapeutic LSD. Sure. Yeah. Just like my friend who got kicked out of university for selling pot, he's an unorthodox pharmacist. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And LSD is the answer. You know, if you've had a rough day, if you're a little uptight, LSD, why not? Exactly. Exactly. So basically, this guy's name isn't out there. He hasn't been charged yet. I'll be interested to see where this goes, Mm -hmm. if anything else comes out in the public. But oh my God, what a don't talk, just listen way to deal with things. Yeah, right? Yeah, he really just embodied that weepy voice spirit. Yeah, he just was a big shitty baby. and He just big baby shat all over that fucking office. I know, right? What a way to shit all over a situation. So with that said, uh, Tyler, do you have any oopsie poopsies? Oopsie poopsies. Well, yes. I've come to realize about myself in making this podcast that my brain just seems to think that vowels are optional and can be interchanged at any time. You're just doing free jazz. Right. So if we remember two weeks ago, I kept saying Sumatra instead of Sumitra when we were talking about the reincarnation story. Oh, I remember that well. Yeah. So anyway, I apparently did that again last week when I kept calling Tamara Samsonova Tamora Samsonova or Tomora Samsonova or Tomora Samsonova. I just... Couldn't get Tamara correct. And in my brain, though, when I'm saying it, it sounds right. And then when I listen back, I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with me? How can I get this name straight? So anyway, my oopsie poopsie, maybe my eternal oopsie poopsie will be constantly getting names wrong. That's fine. Well, I mean, as long as you make up for it and you recognize it, it's a charming thing about you. You have the best of intentions. Yeah, exactly. I will never get mad at anybody when they call me Taylor ever again. I get it. Oh, you just gained a whole new bunch of empathy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, silver lining. Oh, that's so cute. So how about you? Any oopsie poopsies this week, Mama? Well, I can't quite say that I've had any real living and learning moments like you have. Right. I also don't have any oopsie poopsies from last week. I pretty much nailed how fucked up Carl Tanzler was. (laughs) Yes, you did. (laughs) It's not that hard to do. The info is pretty readily available. We all hold hands and agree about how much of a fucking weirdo that guy was. (laughs) Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. Mm -hmm. So oopsie poopsies out of the way. Bye-bye. Perfect. All right, you're going first this week, right? Yes, I am. And this week, I am going to be talking about Hellish Nell. Do you know her? No, but I love the name. Mm -hmm. So I am basically just going to jump straight into this story, and we're going to just see how it all unfolds. So Helen Duncan, a.k.a. Hellish Nell, was born Victoria Helen McRae McFarlane on the 25th of November, 1897 at Back Row in Callender, Perthshire, Scotland, to Isabella and Archibald McFarlane. She had a boatload of names. Yes, ma'am. And she also had a boatload of brothers and sisters. In fact, she was just one of eight. Oh, my God. Yeah, what a way to not feel special at all. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. And I think she was like child number four. So she was like right there in the middle of the pack. Mama just being forgotten about all the fucking time. Totally. She's like the aggressive Von Trapp. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I played her once. You did? Yeah, I was Louisa back in the day when I was in theater school. (laughs) And they did this thing as an initiation.
initiation for all of the first year students, that's a 24 hour musical. So basically you show up on a Thursday, you perform it at end of day on Friday and about 80 students all together sit in a circle. They pass around a hat. Yeah. Now, if you want to be one of the main characters in whatever musical they end up telling you you're doing, you put up your hand and they pass that hat around. So the main roles go out to the people who are comfortable taking it on. Now, this can be from any discipline. So like playwrights, actors, production people, whatever. Then they pass out the hat with all of the other roles in the play, along with like stage managers and like props crew, costume crew, all those kind of stuff. Yeah. You all choose. I got Louisa Von Trapp. <laughs> so she's the one who carries a frog around in her pocket. And yeah, within 24 hours, I learned and performed Sound of Music. <laughs> they had to make a custom dress for my bare ass body and custom little lady slippers for my big ass feet. It was brilliant. <laughs> and they definitely capitalized on the fact that I could do the splits. Right. Yeah. Welcome to being a chunky guy in musical theater. If you can do the splits, they will put that in the show. Right. Mm -hmm. Spotlight go. Yeah. They will either make you take your shirt off and do something akin to the truffle shuffle or they will make you do the splits. One or the other. Mark my words. But yeah, so that was me. I was her. I get it. Yeah, exactly. So just like you were a special little girl, so was Helen. And by the time she was a young child, she started to exhibit some of the psychic abilities that were going to cause her a hell of a lot of trouble later on in her life. Oh, fun. Mm-hmm. So one time at school, the teacher wrote a question on a blackboard, and then the pupils, or the students had to answer on their slates mm -hmm. now slates they just had these cute little chalkboards where they'd write all their answers because they didn't have no scribblers they didn't have no duotangs they just had a little chalkboard and a little piece of chalk cute old school yeah this episode is brought to you in part by audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Love it. Literally old school. Very much. Okay. So anyway, Helen wrote the math problems that the teacher wrote down on her own chalkboard, but she didn't know the answers. So she then closed her eyes and she prayed for help. And to her astonishment, the answer appeared on her slate out of nowhere. Shit. Mm-hmm. So when the teacher saw this and she saw that the answers weren't written in like child's handwriting, she accused Helen of cheating. And Helen just like straight up denied that she'd copied any other children's answers 
answers, but she also couldn't explain how the answers had appeared. Crazy. That would come in handy for Jeopardy. Right? What is Let Me Pray On? Yeah, totally. I mm-hmm. love that. As long mm-hmm. as you could do it in like 10 seconds, you're good. Yeah. So another instance involving school was when Helen kept thinking of the number 1066, as in like 1066. Mm-hmm. Later, during a history lesson, as the teacher was talking about the Battle of Hastings and wrote... 1066 on the blackboard, he suffered a heart attack. Oh, she charmed him to death. Mm-hmm. Now, both of Helen's parents had actually had female relations in their family who were also gifted, so they were really unconcerned by their young daughter's psychic ability, and they basically just thought that she would grow out of it. They're like, oh, it's just a phase. By the time her first moon time hits, she'll be good. <laughs> exactly. She'll be all sort. It's like a reverse Sabrina the Teenage Witch kind of thing. Right, yeah, you burn bright, and then you fizzle out. Love it. But actually, that's not what happened at all. As she got older and she fell into her teenage years, she became more and more in tuned with her abilities and they became more developed and a lot stronger. Rock on, Goldust woman. Yes. So Helen's mother eventually became so concerned that she took her daughter to the local doctor's office to have him check if there was anything physically wrong with her, like her eyesight or her hearing. And he's like, no, it's just metaphysically wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. The doctor couldn't find anything that was wrong with her. But just before leaving the doctor's office, creepy little Helen turns to the doctor and tells him not to go out into his car that night. Really? Mm-hmm. Her mother was pretty embarrassed, apologized, and they left. But just as Helen predicted, the doctor had gone out that night and skidded off the road in a snowstorm and fucking Died. You don't fuck with that kid. Oh my god, she has powers. Yeah, exactly. Rumors at this point started to fly around her small town, and she was being accused of consorting with the devil. So this embarrassment for her family, coupled with the fact that there was just like no jobs in her town, Helen left her family home at the age of 16. It is never a good idea to start rumors about the girl that you think has a connection to Satan. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, right? If it's true, you're fucked. Mm-hmm. Like, have you not seen Carrie? You are first on the firing line. Right. Firestarter, girl, bye. Bye, Felicia. So anyway, when Helen left, she moved to Dundee. And while she was in Dundee, the First World War broke out. And there she worked in ammunitions factories, then at a jute factory, and then later as a nurse. And little did they know she could probably shut this shit down if she were out on the battlefield. Right. If they harnessed her powers the correct way, she'd be X-manning it up. Yeah, whereas she she was just like, well, I'm just going to be moving these boxes of gauze for a while at the hospital instead. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So while working as a nurse, Helen befriended her best friend, Jean Duncan, who then introduced Helen to her family, including her brother, Henry Duncan. Apparently, Henry's first words to Helen were, so we meet at last. Oh, wow. How mystical of him. (laughs) Right? And then he just immediately asked her how much it hurt when she fell from heaven. Totally. You know? He tipped his fedora and he said, hello, my lady. Exactly. It's wonderful to meet you. What a beautiful day. Yeah. Why don't we go out on a paddleboat ride a little bit later? Exactly. Douche. (laughs) So just as Henry recognized Helen, and Helen
Alan also recognized Henry. Apparently, they had had visions of each other before they ever met. Oh my. So cute. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Henry got to know Helen and her psychic abilities, and he was super stoked because he was really into the supernatural. So he never suppressed Helen's talent. He actually encouraged it. Totally. Yeah, he was like a dance mom. He was like Kris Jenner. He was her momager. Exactly. And, you know, we stand a supportive spouse, so it's cool. I'm into it. Yeah. So, yeah, they got along really well. 1916, they got married. By this time, Henry had been discharged from the army due to a weak valve in his his heart, so he became a cabinet maker. Now, cabinet making didn't really bring in the Bianca bucks, so Helen and Henry struggled to make ends meet. Okay. But don't you know it? It's the early 1900s, so what did they do? They had a bunch of fucking babies. Of course. That's a way to solve everything. Right. Money problems? Get a baby. Throw a baby on it. You know what? Have six babies. Why not? Which is exactly what they did. Together, they had six children, Bella, Nan, Lillian, Henry, Peter, and Gina. So during these years of struggling and having babies, Helen tried to supplement the household income by repairing and washing bedsheets and shirts for one penny an item, and then she also took a job in a bleach mill. How fun. Yeah, it probably had about the same safety standards as a fucking radium factory. Totally, but at least her roots were always touched up. <laughs> yeah, she never had to worry about any exposed roots, mama. It's a perk. Therapeutic bleach. Exactly. So one day while touching up her roots and sewing a button here and washing some bedding there, Helen all of a sudden had a premonition that Henry was in trouble. Uh-oh. So she rushed to his workshop to find that he had suffered a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Although she managed to get him the help that he needed to save his life, it was obvious that he would not be able to work again full time, which caused them to fall on even harder times financially. Trying to figure out how they would make ends meet, Henry began to encourage Helen to develop her psychic talents, which at this time included psychometry, precognition, clairvoyance, clairaudience, and clairdance. Oh wow, all the clairs. Yes, and eclair. Let's just start listing our favorite Claire's. I will not follow you down that path. All right, fair enough. Well, anyway, all jokes aside, Helen was apparently exceptionally skilled, and she and Henry set forth to hone in on developing her abilities even more. Mm -hmm. So they learned that Helen was able to hold an object and give information about the owner with uncanny accuracy. Cool. Antiques Roadshow, here she comes. (laughs) Yes, mama. Helen would also often go into a deep sleep or trance, and in this sleep or trance, she was able to communicate with spirits. Lucky her. Yes. It was also during one of these trances that Henry himself heard a disembodied voice. That voice was of a Dr. Williams. So Dr. Williams told Henry that his wife had the potential to materialize spirits. Wow, how specific on many ends. So this ghost just popped up. He's like, hello, my name is Dr. Williams. Very nice to meet you. Mm-hmm. Did you know this about your wife? Dr. Williams signed off. Exactly. It, from what I can understand, was exactly that. I love a ghost that cares about exposition. Definitely. And so did Henry. So when Helen came out of her trance, he was super excited and told her that she had this ability to materialize spirits. Helen, however, was not quite as excited because she was a little worried about what would happen if she developed this skill that she maybe couldn't really control. Fair enough. All of that said, Henry was kind of able to sway Helen because she always had a want to help others and in this era there were plenty of people who had lost loved ones in world war 
are one and we're in search of comfort, closure, and reassurance. And what better way to give them that than to expose them to their past loved ones? She's like, look, there are a lot of vulnerable people out there that I need to take advantage of for their own emotional support. <laughs> yeah. It's for their betterment, truly. Love that. Exactly. How so, heartless. Yeah, right? So they were going for the humanitarian edit. Mm-hmm, very humanitarian. Exactly. So with this in mind, Henry and Helen began initial experimental seances with neighbors and friends as sitters. And a sitter, if you're not aware, is just a person who is present at a seance. Totally. They're patting out the audience. They're getting clappers. Exactly. They're papering the house. So apparently these seances turned out to be quite unpredictable and even frightening at times, but Henry soon learned from his ghost advisor, Dr. Williams, exactly how to develop his wife's talents while keeping everyone safe. First and foremost, they learned that it was a good idea to say a prayer at the start of the seance to ward off evil spirits. Henry also employed his carpentry skills to make a cabinet for Helen, which was basically a wooden framed cupboard with black curtains on the front. So like a ghost porta potty. Pretty much that, yeah. Helen was to sit inside of the cabinet and would harness her energy and this cabinet would act as a type of portal for spirits to materialize and appear to sitters. Cute. Yes, mama. So now while she was in the trance in the cabinet, Helen began to produce ectoplasm mm -hmm. from her mouth and her nostrils. Now, if you don't know what ectoplasm is, it is a white smoky mucus substance that a medium may secrete during the manifestation of the dead. It's like a ghost sneeze. <laughs> exactly. And the fucking sitters loved this ghost sneeze mama. They described it as like a magical mist or a living cobweb. It glowed bright white and seemed to have a life of its own. Oh my God, was she like snorting highlighters? <laughs> she had that therapeutic radio right up there. Right? You know what? That LSD water would be really handy right about now. Totally. Now, in their preparation for their seances, Dr. Williams had warned Henry that no light must ever be shone on the ectoplasm or it would be extremely dangerous to Helen. Yeah, you wouldn't want to see the strings. <laughs> no, exactly. Now, actually... Do you know how you don't see the strings? Mm -hmm. I learned this in film school. If you're shooting something and you're dangling it with strings and you want it to look like it's floating in the air, you just rub the fishing line with cheese. Oh my God, you could have been at the turn of the century spiritualist. Mama, if only. If you could turn back town, <laughs> I'd be a medium. Oh, everyone is so welcome <laughs> as they turn off their podcast mm -hmm. apps. You're welcome. They're like, I thought they stopped singing at the top of fucking episodes. Now like, we just sneak it in the middle. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's called a sneak attack in the business. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. Okay, so light could never be shown on the ectoplasm or it would be really dangerous for Helen. That's where we left off. Yeah. Um, but a dim red light was always on during the seances, just enough so that the sitters could see what was happening. A little bit of mood. Mm-hmm. little red light district mama. Mm-hmm. So one of the unfortunate side effects of Helen producing ectoplasm, however, was that she felt tired and sick after the seances, which, like, sounds legit. Fair enough. Ghosts will kick the shit out of you. Yes, mama. So now, during one of their trial seances, Dr. William 
Williams once again made his presence known. His disembodied voice echoed through the room as he told the room that Helen's quote-unquote spirit guide could now take the form through ectoplasm. He just swung into the room and was like, Dr. Williams is here. Hello, everyone. Remember me? I've got more intel on... What's her name? Helen. I got more intel on Helen, everybody. Right? With his little earpiece. Mm, yeah. So anyway, Dr. Williams announces that he would be leaving them from this point forward and that these new spirit guides would look after Helen from then on. Oh, fair enough. He had to do a handoff meeting. Exactly. That's very thoughtful of Dr. Williams. Right. Always one for exposition and clarity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Stunt queen. So during this very same sitting, it was reported that the ectoplasm that emerged from Helen's mouth and nose swirled into the shape of an elderly but distinguished man who was over six foot tall and when he spoke there was a trace of an Australian accent. Did he introduce himself? He did and he introduced himself as Albert Stewart. Oh wow he's like hello my name is Albert Stewart here's my birth certificate here's my SAG card lovely to meet you all. (laughs) It was kind of that. Let me tell you a little bit about myself I have a one-man show I've been creating and I'm gonna do a monologue from it now. Lights. (laughs) No lights. Dim lights, remember. Ectoplasm mama, lights don't work. Nobody has to say lights so you know what it will look like when it's actually on stage someday. Oh, right. It's like when you close a scene and you say curtain. Yeah, I'm giving you real solo show shit. Right. So... Albert did give a little bit of information about himself, at least. He said that he was born in Scotland, but immigrated to Australia, and there he had drowned in 1913. Mm -hmm. Albert Stewart, or Uncle Albert, as he became known, was polite and had quite the sense of humor. In fact, since his first appearance, Uncle Albert became the master of ceremonies during Helen's seances. (laughs) He would announce to sitters what spirits were about to come out of the cabinet. He was like the announcer at the strip bar. Exactly. He was like, next on stage, jazz. Exactly. Now, Uncle Albert wasn't the only spirit advisor that appeared during Helen's seances. There was another spirit guide named Peggy, and Peggy was described as a young girl who would skip around the room singing songs. Love that. You know, she gave the intermission performances. Totally. Yeah, she was the bartender, and then every now and then during karaoke, she would hop up there and do a number herself to keep the energy up in the room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the sitters ate it up. We've all been to that bar. So now word that Helen had developed from a clairvoyant to a materialization medium quickly spread. And by the mid 1920s, Helen's talent was much in demand and she started receiving invites to perform seances all across the UK. One of these invites came from the Scottish Spiritualist Society in Edinburgh, who invited Helen to give regular seances to the their members. So Helen's seances at the Scottish Spiritual Society proved to be quite popular, and so they presented her with a certificate endorsing her talent. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, so they put a ring on it. Yeah, they put a ring on it. Here's her side card. However, when Helen and her husband Henry learned how much the sitters were paying to attend the seances compared to how much they were making off of the seances, they were like, no, 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 and they cut ties. No, an artist knows their worth. Exactly. So they decided they needed to continue on their own, and so Henry became Helen's manager. Living the full Chris Jenner fantasy. At this point, yes. So in 1931, Henry became so confident in Helen 
Allen's talents that he agreed to let notable cynic Harry Price witness and test Helen's psychic abilities. He's like, fight my wife. Exactly. So Price was a prolific author and media personality of the day who had written several best-selling books on the supernatural and was also the director of the National Laboratory of Psychical Research. Yeah, he's like, my wife's gonna hand you your ass. Right? Eat it. So Price, of course, was determined to prove that Helen was in fact a fraud as the validity of spiritualism continued to wane ever since the Fox sisters admitted to fraud in the 1880s. They fucked it up for everybody. They fucked it up for everybody. And we talked a little bit about it in episode 16. They were the godmothers of spiritualism. They basically created the whole thing and they did seances for decades and decades. And then eventually they were just like, y'all, it was fake. Girl, we're just playing. Right? They were rap a tap a tapping knuckles cracking playing everyone the fool. Mm-hmm. So anyway, during his inquiry, Price witnessed a number of controlled test seances. During one of these seances, Price had taken a sample of ectoplasm and concluded that the ectoplasm was more likely just cheesecloth. Got him with the pudding bag. <laughs> yes, ma'am. However, this was disputed because Helen was always physically examined by a random female sitter before dressing for each and every seance, and these women would examine her and confirm that no piece of cloth could have been concealed on or inside of her body. So they strip-searched her? They strip-searched her every time, and then they watched her get dressed before she went out to do the seance. Girl, talk about mm-hmm. a VIP ticket. Right, it's a little secret show. I know. She's all for accountability, and it's a great way to get moles checked. <laughs> exactly. But Price had an explanation for this. He basically claimed that Helen likely regurgitated the cheesecloth during the seances, which would have gone on detect it during the examinations. So basically, she ate a bunch of cheesecloth, got examined, and then regurgitated it during the seance. Wow, a very clean vomit from Helen. (laughs) Exactly. So after drawing this conclusion, Price wanted to x-ray Helen before one of her seances, but she flat out refused. And to Price, this refusal only supported his regurgitation theory. How strange, she turns down a therapeutic x-ray. Exactly, right? So three years passed by, and now it's 1934. During a seance in Edinburgh, there was one sitter named Miss Mall. Now, Miss Mall happened to be a good Judy of Harry Price. Mm-hmm. When Peggy, one of Helen's and spiritual guys appeared, Miss Mall reached out to grab the apparition. This action caused a great commotion, which ended the seance. She's like, don't you touch Peggy. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Helen straight up raged, and in fact, the police had to be called. Girl. Yeah. When the police arrived, Miss Mall held out an undervest and alleged that this was the quote-unquote spirit that manifested out of Helen. Helen, however, claimed that the garment Miss Mall was holding had been taken from her own travel bag in an attempt to discredit her. She's like, don't you come for Peggy like that. (laughs) Exactly. Don't come for Peggy out the side of your neck like that, bitch. (laughs) Exactly. Now, I will say there are photos of these spirit guides, which we will post on Instagram, and when you see them, I'll let you be the judge of if they were real or not. Okay. So the police in this moment offered Helen the chance to bring charges against Miss Mall, but she refused, and then later the matter was settled in Edinburgh Sheriff Court. Helen 
Ellen was accused of both affray and fraud, and she pleaded not guilty. Now, affray, I guess, is just a charge for, like, inciting violence or something, like a brawl, like a street fight, whatever. Wow, this is the realest anything's gotten in this story. It's the tea. In many ways. That's the tea. So there were eight people present at the seance, but only three appeared for the prosecution. Mm -hmm. One of the people who appeared in court was Dr. Marguerite Link Hutchinson, who was the woman that had examined the naked Helen before the seance and supervised her as she dressed in her black seance garments. She's like, do you see this hat? This hat is three feet in diameter. Trust my word. I saw that bitch naked. (laughs) Exactly. So in court, Dr. Lynch Hutchinson was shown the seized vest and and asked if Helen could have used it to replicate the young spirit guide Peggy. The doctor was like, no, it would have been impossible to produce anything that looked like the spirit guide out of this garment. Peggy has a very distinct look. (laughs) Yes. I get it. Now... Price's regurgitation theory was also put forward and dismissed by the doctor. She had basically said that Helen could not have regurgitated the amount of material that would have been required to produce the spirit that had materialized. You call him Peggy Thick? I'm into it. <laughs> Yes, Baba. She's thick and juicy. Mm-hmm. Now, aren't we all? Yes, ma'am. Now, in addition to this, the doctor had seen Helen eat just before the seance. So, if this fabric had in fact been regurgitated, the doctor said that food matter would have been present, which it was not. Fair enough. She was looking for corn. Yeah. So, ultimately, Helen was sentenced to pay a ten shilling fine, but only for the affray offense alone. Oh, so just for fighting? Just for fighting. So, the court did not find any substantial evidence to convict Helen of fraud. They're like, well, she's scrappy, but we don't know if she's not a psychic. Exactly. So now, despite these attempts to discredit her, Helen's popularity and reputation just continued to grow. People love a diva with grit. Yes, they do. And by the 1940s, Helen was traveling even further across the UK, holding hundreds of seances in homes and spiritual churches. The onset of World War II now increased the demand for seances even more from from those who had lost family or friends in the war. So just like World War I, more people were trying to find people to conduct seances so that they could talk to their dead loved ones. And she's just like full on Mr. Burns, like, hey, hey, boatloads of vulnerable people. <laughs> exactly. So in 1941, Helen held two seances that would prove to have some serious repercussions for her in the future. The first seance took place in Edinburgh on the 24th of May. During the course of the seance, Helen's spirit guide Albert claimed that a British battleship had just been sunk. However, it wasn't until the following morning that military officials were even aware that the British battleship HMS Hood had been sunk the day before. Oh, insider info. Insider info. So this news of this ship sinking was announced at Helen's seances before anybody even knew it fucking happened. Damn. She did it. Yes. She sank him. <laughs> right. With her mind. Go Peggy. So now we're fast forwarding a little bit later into 1941 and it's November. Helen held a seance in Portsmouth, the home port of the Royal Navy. Cute. During this seance, the spirit of a sailor in uniform materialized, complete with the name HMS Barhand on his cap. Sitters heard him declare to his mother, who was one of the sitters, that his ship had been sunk with a great loss of life. Wow. Now, the shocked lady said that that couldn't be correct because she hadn't been notified, but the spirit sailor claimed that she would be notified in three weeks' time before fading away. 
Damn. The sailor's mother was so concerned that she contacted the Admiralty, who sent two officials out to question her. The Admiralty knew through German Enigma machine radio communications intercepted that the Germans thought only minor damage had been caused to the HMS Barham. Yet the truth was that the ship had been blown up a few minutes after being hit by a U-boat torpedo. As the Royal Navy wanted the German Navy to think the HMS Barham was still a threat in the Mediterranean Sea, Rather than lying on the bottom of it, they had gone to great lengths to keep the sinking from the public. In fact, it was not officially announced until later in January 1942. Damn. But because of Helen's seance, rumors spread around Portsmouth much earlier that the HMS Barham had been sunk. She is spilling all the tea. Right? Now, it is worth noting, though, that the family members of those who did die in the ship sinking were notified but told not to say anything. So it is possible that that is how the information actually got out rather than Helling having conjured one of the spirits of the sailors. Totally, or having somebody on the inside. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Her hair is full of secrets. <laughs> so many secrets. And now when the government heard about this, they kind of put Helen on their radar as a potential security risk. But despite of this, no legal action was taken against Helen and she gave seances until January 1944. At this time, D-Day was being planned at Southwick House near Portsmouth, so not far from where Helen was. Oh, yeah, she's going to fuck that up. Mm-hmm. So it was vital for the British Army that the invasion was successful. Germany was developing new rockets and flying pilotless aircrafts called doodlebugs. Mm -hmm. Basically, if D-Day had failed, Germany might have had enough time to complete these weapons fully and win the war. So training for D-Day had begun and gone badly and many troops had died. And as paranoia hit new heights, it was feared that if a spirit of one of these soldiers had appeared at one of Helen's seances, it could spill the beans about when and where the invasion was going to take place. I love it. They're just like, you got loose lips, Helen. Exactly. We're watching you. Exactly. You and Peggy better watch your ass. Exactly. So on January 19th, 1944, Helen was invited to hold a seance at a master temple above a chemist shop in Hopenor Road in Portsmouth. The seance was raided by the police and Helen was initially arrested under Section 4 of the Vagrancy Act of 1824, which was a minor offense tried by magistrates. So because the Vagrancy Act of 1824 was not enough to detain Helen for an extended amount of time, authorities put forth a 200-year-old law that had not been used in almost a century. Oh, that's always fun. Totally. And this law was the Witchcraft Act of 1735. Oh, shit. So the Witchcraft Act of 1735 covered fraudulent spiritual activity, which was triable before a jury, thus allowing authorities to jail Helen until her trial. They're like, girl, let's do this Salem style. What's up? Right? Literal fucking witch hunt. Oh, my God. They're like, get the Maleficus Magnificarum or whatever the fuck it is. Yeah. I don't remember the name, but, you know, that witch hunt 
hunting book. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So like now, needless to say, this created a lot of sensation. So it actually started to take the headlines of newspapers in London during the fucking World War. Damn, that's star power. Yeah. So as they prepared for the trial, police had expected to find evidence of fraud, but they had failed to find anything. Without physical evidence, their case was based on the logic that Helen must have pretended to conjure up spirits of the dead because no such thing existed, which basically meant that in order to defend her innocence, Helen had to prove the existence of life after death. Oh man, that's a lot to put on somebody's shoulders. (laughs) Yeah, mama, that's a tall fucking order. Yeah. So the trial lasted between the 23rd of March and the 3rd of April, 1944. The prosecution produced only five witnesses, two of which were policemen involved in her arrest, so that wasn't much to go on. The defense, however, produced 49 witnesses, including a district sessions judge, a reverend, a doctor, a wing commander, and a theater critic. These witnesses claimed that the spirits that they had seen appear ranged from old people to young children and even pets. The critics like, and they... Dang. Exactly. They couldn't project their voice. Their timing was just juvenile. <laughs> exactly. So many had divulged family information that Helen could not possibly have known or talked in foreign languages that Helen didn't speak. Many had seen Helen apparently asleep in her cabinet and the spirits at the same time. Luce B, her lawyer, had initially requested to demonstrate a seance but was denied. However, after all of the testimonies, Luce B made a second request to conduct a seance in court, which the judge, Judge Dodson, had approved. Okay. However, the jury declined the offer of a seance when it was proposed to them by the judge. Girl, you gotta play your game. (laughs) Exactly. But it's basically thought that they had been brought to London from Portsmouth and were away from their families, and all they really wanted to do was go back home, plus the trial kept being interrupted by fucking bombs. Fair enough. Yeah. So, unsurprisingly, Helen was found guilty. She was sentenced to nine months and sent to Holloway Prison. A subsequent appeal was rejected. So by this time, Helen was a sick woman and suffered from diabetes. The conditions of Holloway were grim and the food was poor, and Helen seriously doubted that she would survive the sentence. However, Helen's sentence was reduced to six months, and on September 22nd, 1944, she was released. Yeah. Now, Helen was one of the last women to be convicted under the Witchcraft Act of 1735 which sought prosecution for anyone who falsely claimed to be able to procure spirits or tell fortunes. I would fucking hope. Uh Uh-huh. And on her release, Helen vowed to stop conducting seances. However, even after the war, the demand for seances were high, and so Helen continued to conduct seances. In 1951, the Witchcraft Act was repealed. In its place came the Fraudulent Mediums Act, and some four years later, in 1954, spiritualism was officially recognized as a proper religion by an act of parliament. Now, this was good news for spiritualists everywhere, and they were pleased that while frauds would be properly prosecuted, the authorities would stop harassing true working mediums. Fair enough. They're just trying to earn their rent. That's it. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today, using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. But in 1956, another one of Helen's seances held in Nottingham was raided by police. Girl. No evidence of fraud was found, but during their raid, the police had committed the worst possible sin of physical phenomena. They shone a light on the ectoplasm. No. Mm-hmm. So when this happened, the ectoplasm returned to her body far too quickly and caused immense damage. A doctor was summoned and discovered two second-degree burns the size of saucers on Helen's stomachs and breasts. She was in severe pain and shock, and she was rushed to the hospital. Oh, my God. The burns never healed, and five weeks after the police raid, she was dead. Helen passed away on the 6th of December, 1956. Oh, whoa. So when Helen died in 1956 from burdens sustained when a seance in Nottingham was raided, Henry was devastated. He wanted to take legal action against the police, but as they claimed they hadn't actually physically touched his wife, he couldn't do anything. Henry always considered his wife to be a woman of major importance who could provide the answer to one of the most intriguing questions ever asked. Is there life after death? And even after Helen's death, Henry insisted his wife was no fraud and he did all he could do to clear her name. Henry Duncan died on the 18th of October, 1967. Sorry, girl. So since her death, Helen had been considered a martyr amongst mediums and spiritualists. And for a while, there was a campaign for Helen to be awarded a posthumous pardon, which was rejected. Although there are firm believers that Helen was a true medium, there are also many skeptics. Hi, how are you? You wanted a mama? I don't know. So primarily, given the photographic evidence of Helen's seances and the so-called spirit guardians, which really do look like fucking puppets, it's probably safe to say that there was, in part at least, some fraudulent acts happening. Fair enough. Although it was still a very good one because to this day, there's still no exact explanation as to how the spirits and ectoplasm emerged during the seances. Gotta love a bit of movie magic. Yes, mama. So the way I see it, Helen was probably a partial medium. She was probably able to tap into the spirit world and given that they needed to make money off of it and Henry's initial encounter with Mr. Williams, they probably did lead to some deceitful showmanship. Totally. She's like a knockoff Chanel bag, but like a good knockoff. (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. So was she a medium? Wasn't she a medium? Was she a fraud? Wasn't she a fraud? We'll never really know, but that is the history and life of Helen Duncan, a.k.a. Hellish Nell. Ooh, I love it. Hellish Nell. Do you know when she started getting called that? I don't, actually. It was just kind of what she was referred to in headlines. I couldn't actually find the origin of that nickname. If I were her, I'd lean into it. Maybe she did. Who knows? All right, well, thanks, Tyler. No problem. Super cute. 
All right, you ready for me? Yes, I am. I got a good one this week. Okay, so true crime time. Woohoo. Mm-hmm. This week, I'm going to be talking about Herbert Baumeister, a.k.a. this is just my nickname for him, the pool mannequin guy. Oh, shit. Welcome to the world of pool mannequins, everybody. So, Herb Baumeister was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, April 7th, 1947. An Aries. Oh. A lot of wild energy. So, he's the oldest of four children. His father was Herbert Baumeister. He was an anesthesiologist. His mother was Elizabeth. He had a pretty normal upbringing. So, his family, pretty nice people from what I can understand. Okay. Herbert, not so much. As he hit his teen years, he began to exhibit a bit of antisocial behavior. Check number one. Yeah, such as, and I'm going to say acquaintances because they weren't his friends, remember a young Herbie playing with some dead animals and peeing on his teacher's desk. Check number two. Check number three. He had interests. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes he would ask his friends what they thought it would be like to drink human pee. Okay. He was inquisitive. Sure. Other times, he'd pick up roadkill like crows. He loved dead crows. He'd stuff them in his pocket for safekeeping, and then he'd go to school, do his thing, and then when his teacher wasn't looking, he would throw the roadkill on his teacher's desk. I mean... (laughs) I know, what a fun party guy. I don't want to support that behavior, but just that visualization is kind of funny. Fierce. So, as a teenager, he ended up getting diagnosed with schizophrenia, but didn't receive any further psychological or psychiatric assistance. No medication, no therapy. He was just like, oh, thank you for letting me know that about myself. Love a personality test. Now, how old was he? I don't really know, but like as a young teenager, so under the age of 18. Right. Yeah, so they were just like, well, let's see where this goes. Sure. So, 1965, the age of 18, he attends Indiana University for one semester, and then he drops out. Right. Now, he goes back in 1967, tries to give it another go, doesn't necessarily work out. I mean, school's not for everybody. No, and he actually tried it one more time in 1972. He did a semester at Butler University, but whatever. Turns out, he didn't really need school, baby. As he came into adulthood, he just kind of breezed from job to job. He started out as a copy boy and then he got a job at the bureau of motor vehicles work making that government lunch break money yeah and this is where he ignited as a person okay yeah he decided to blossom as if he hadn't already by stuffing dead crows in his pocket yeah or through pondering the better parts of drinking pee deal is the people that he worked with said that he was a hard worker all that was good but he was just weird as fuck right now when i first started to read this it said that he had sent out a christmas card to everybody one year with him and a drag queen pose being like happy holidays everyone yeah yeah and i was like okay well this can't be that bad maybe you guys were just uptight and he was just living his queer fantasy whatever yeah. well it escalated a little bit when herb mystery peed on his boss's desk old habits die hard <laughs> Hmm. and nobody knew who it was so they were just like oh who is this phantom peer but people knew that it was herbert okay right yeah but he kept the job and he just kept sauntering through life, baby. And in November of 1971, he marries Juliana, also known as Julie Sater. Now, at some point during the 70s, Herb was committed to a psychiatric hospital by his father. Okay. Who said that he was hurting and needed help. 
but he seemed to come out of that unscathed. He stayed with Julie through all of this. And by the end of the 70s, they started having kids. They had three of them. Wow. Yeah, because he just needed to impart his wisdom onto another human being. Right. So he had Marie in 1979, and then they had Eric in 1981, and then they had Emily in 1984. And everything seemed relatively peachy until Herb got fired from the BMV when he peed on a letter that was addressed to the governor of Indiana. <laughs> Classic. Classic Herb. I know, just up to his old antics, and they just couldn't handle it. Like, come on, guys, he's into water sports. Right? And that's fine. Yeah, you can be a pee fiend all you want, but not at work. Not at work. Not on people's desks and not on people's mail. When will Herbert learn? So, he was out of his job at the BMV. He was out of the psychiatric hospital. What's next for Herbert? He gets a job at a thrift store. Cute. And immediately, he sees potential in the business opportunities. So, he goes back to Julie and he's like, Girl, I know what we're going to do to change our lives. We're going to open up our own thrift store. I mean, legit, those were the days that that thrifting was lucrative. You know what I mean? It's when nobody wanted to thrift that you could find these gems that nobody knew were valuable and then turn them out. Girl, Divine had a thrift store. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, they got a $4,000 loan and they started their own store. So in 1988, they opened Save-A-Lot. That's S-A-V hyphen A hyphen lot. I mean, not the greatest name. Don't you feel represented? They dropped the vowel. Oh my God, my people. I know. And it actually ended up turning into a chain. So it got pretty successful. Now, by chain, they mean two stores in Indianapolis. But hey, whatever. They got a chain going on. I mean, how big is Indianapolis? Like, how long does a chain really need to be? How big is your chain of stores? I'm not going to judge. Right. All right. So the chain ends up becoming a success. And Herbert Baumeister and Julie Baumeister end up becoming pretty rich. Rich, rich. But things don't get better for them. So during their 25-year marriage, Julie said that they only had sex about six times. Mm, And three of those times. Times we know was at least when they had baby one, two, and three. Yeah, so maybe each one took one try before. But yeah, he was just not into it. Julie also said that she never saw her husband nude. Okay. Impressive. And when it came time to go to bed, he would always put his pajamas on, like slipping into them between the sheets. Mm -hmm. And he told her that he was ashamed of his skinny body. Oh. Yeah, so Julie kind of felt bad for him there. Problem was, he was a bit of a controlling asshole in every other sense. Right. So their relationship dynamic was pretty fucked. People said that Herb kind of like called the shots and that Julie was always going along for the ride. Basically, she was like meant to live in his shadow in his mind. Right. So he would tramp on her in conversation, embarrass her in public. And people actually said that when they came by the house, they noticed that it was like really cluttered and not well taken care of. Basically, they just said that the Baumeisters seemed like they lacked order in like every sense of their life and things just kind of got saltier as time went on so basically Julie would often take the kids out over the weekends to go stay with the grandparents away at some lake and Julie and Herb would just tell people that Herb couldn't come along because of business pressures basically though this was just a really great way for them to get the fuck away from each other right it sounded like it was a marriage of convenience perhaps very much so because Herb didn't mind that they were away all the time because that gave him time to go cruise gay bars in Indianapolis ding ding Ding, ding, ding. Welcome. So allegedly, he would pick up men and bring them back to the house. And just between you and me, you know, just between girls, Mm -hmm. he would strangle them and dispose of their bones in the woods behind the home. Oh, 
of course he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so his behavior kind of escalated. Kind of. Yeah, and the whole thing was around the same time that all of this was happening, articles started coming out in the local news media about gay men who had gone missing in the area. But the deal was, if you go back and read those articles, they're basically just like, well, something could be going on with these guys, or it could just be gay guys running away, leaving their lives behind in small town Indianapolis to go live in New York or Atlanta or California or some other gay mecca. Right. Now, I was about to give this fucking town some credit for reporting these disappearances, but apparently they just explained them away. Nope. They were just like, oh, so-and-so's missing. Well, they're probably going to get famous. Right. They were gay, so who cares? Yeah. So welcome to the early 90s. By about 1994, some real shit starts going on. Herb's son, Eric, is out in the backyard one day just playing around in the woods. Right. All of a sudden, he comes across a half buried human skeleton. Oh, bitch. Yeah, so he's just kind of like, what the fuck do I do with this? Goes to his mom, explains what's going on. She comes out, she's like, yep, you're seeing what you're seeing, son. Let's see what dad has to say about this. So, Herb comes back from work, and she's just kind of like, what's going on, Herbie? Do you know anything about the skeleton? He, deadass, is just like, oh yeah, well, it's one of my father's dissecting skeletons. He's a doctor, remember? He's a fucking anesthesia. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't know. I don't want to, like, call too much shade, but, like, why didn't she call the fucking police, like, right away? She believed him. He told her that he had the body stored in the garage and then buried it in the yard after he decided to clean out the garage. What the fuck? She just wants to keep making that good thrift store money. Yeah, and I think that this is a bit of a bigger issue going on, too, where Julie is just kind of ignoring these huge red flags, like the six sexual encounters with her husband husband over the 25 years right yeah there was a lot of layers to this a little bit of maybe emotional abuse emotional manipulation i think that's what we're looking at so like i said Gay guys are going missing in the area. In 1994, a private investigator, former police officer named Virgil Vandegrift, gets contacted by the mother of 28-year-old Alan Broussard. So Alan had disappeared, and he was going through his fair share of shit at the time. He was a heavy drinker. He was essentially a gay guy living in a community of people that just did not accept him. Mm -hmm. And the last time he had been seen was at a gay bar called Brothers. Now, Virgil Vandegrift, this private investigator, works with Alan Broussard's mother as much as he can. He puts up posters throughout Indianapolis and basically tries to run Alan's photo as much as possible in the public to try to get any information. Right. Now that's in June. Over the next month, Virgil basically gets three more clues that lead him to believe that Alan's disappearance is part of a larger issue of a serial killer in the gay community. First of all, Virgil learned that an Indianapolis police detective named Mary Wilson was actually working on a number of disappearances. Like he found out that the police were actually starting to take some action and create a little bit of a task force to take care of these gay male disappearances. Okay. And when he ended up hearing about the cases that Mary Wilson was looking into, he noticed that a lot of these guys that she was investigating who had been identified as missing matched the physical appearance of Alan Broussard, who was the guy that he was looking for. Right. The second thing that he found in that month period was an article that was put out in the Indiana Word about a guy named Jeff Jones who had disappeared in mid-1993, so about a year before. Mm -hmm. Basically, the Indiana Word was a gay lifestyle magazine that he had found while he was scouting at a gay bar that reported 
that Jones, who was 31, basically just disappeared out of thin air on the streets of Indianapolis one night. Now, the third thing was another disappearance. So in late July, Roger Allen Goodlett, who was 34 years old from Indianapolis, leaves his mother's place to go visit a gay bar on 16th Street. Mm -hmm. He's never heard from again. Just like the other two guys, he was roughly the same age. He had the same kind of approach to life, same lifestyle, and basically just disappeared into thin air. Now, Goodlett's mother ended up coming to Virgil Vandegrift, just like Mrs. Broussard, because basically she didn't want to wait out the legal waiting period for a missing person and all that right. to start investigating her son's disappearance. So he took her on as a client and he just began investigating even further. Virgil and an investigator named Bill Hillsley ended up going out and looking through gay bars in town, but they didn't really come up with much. Basically, the owners and the regulars at these bars were a little too freaked out to talk to anybody that looked like a police officer. Right. They did, however, learn that Roger Allen Goodlett, the third guy who disappeared, had left a bar called Our Place with another man in a light blue car with an Ohio license plate. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, it didn't go much further than that at the time, because according to Virgil Vandegriff, he found the police in Indianapolis to be disinterested with any of the information that he was collecting or supplying to them. Right. Basically, they were just like, cool, uh, we, we're not going to pass this on to Mary Wilson. She's doing fine on her own. Bye, bitch. What the hell? Yeah, but he wasn't discouraged. He trotted on with his work. Right. And good thing he did, because the next month, in August 1994, a guy named Tony Harris comes forward to the police. Now, Tony Harris is a pseudonym. He's never come out and put out his true name. It's all good, though. Yeah. Basically, he says that he had known Robert Goodlett from the local gay community, and he had seen the posters that Virgil Vandegrift had put out, and he believes that he knew some information that could help solve what's going on with Roger's whereabouts. Right. Basically, Tony came forward and was like, yeah, I've met the guy who's the serial killer, and I went home with him. Shit. Yeah, so when he tried to tell the police this initially, they treated him like he was crazy. The FBI suggested that maybe he was on a drug trip and that this was all a hallucination. Like, how erratic must he have been acting for them to think he was on a drug trip? What the fuck? Well, I don't know, but leave it to police to write off queer people. Mm -hmm. So, Tony Harris contacts Roger's mother. She puts him in contact with the private investigator, Virgil Vandegrift. So, according to Tony, he met this guy when he was at a bar called the 501 Club. It's a local gay bar. He says that he had seen him before around the Indianapolis gay scene, but he couldn't quite place him. Like, he didn't know a name or anything like that. Right. But he said that the guy that they thought to be the serial killer was lanky, tall, and silent. Now, on this night in August, Tony Harris is at the 501 Club, and he sees this lanky guy that he's seen around the gay community before, and he notices that he's really kind of weirdly hovering around the missing persons poster for Roger Goodlett. Okay. Yeah, so he was up in the bar, and he just noticed him, like, really intently staring at it and just kind of, like, looking over it. It just sounds cartoonish. Mm -hmm. He was sneering the entire time. Yeah, and basically Tony was just like, I had a feeling that he was captivated by the poster and that this was probably the guy who killed Roger. Like, he just got a feeling in his bones. Mm -hmm. So he was like, I've got to talk to this guy and introduce myself. i got to find out more info on this motherfucker. So Tony goes up to him, introduces himself. The weird lanky guy introduces himself as Brian Smart. Tony asks Brian Smart about Roger and his disappearance, says nothing but ends up inviting Tony out for the night. He's like, I don't know anything about your friend that's missing, but shall we dine? 
Wow, what a suave gentleman. I know, move over, Fabio. So, he explains that he was a landscape artist from Ohio who was currently living in an empty house in the area that he was preparing for the new owners who hadn't moved in yet. Weird. Great alibi. And basically, he was like, yeah, let's go back there for a cocktail and a swim. And after a little bit of convincing, Tony Harris is like, sure, why not? So, they end up going outside to the guys like gray buick with an ohio license plate Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they get in they go up meridian street and they're off now they end up going past a whole bunch of like greenery tony said that he usually didn't venture far north out of indianapolis often but he knew that he was going into rich people territory in his right right so they end up going off the highway somewhere past 121st street and then they made like a whole bunch of windy turns and they end up in this like really quiet area that he said was like kind of dotted with expensive homes and farms and all this kind of stuff. Right. Spacious and rich. Totally. So they get up to this asphalt driveway and as they're turning up, Tony notices a sign outside and he can't really fully read it, but it just says something farm. So he's like, oh shit, she's got a name. They go up the end of this long driveway as Tony describes it and there's this large Tudor style country mansion, which funny enough happens to be the home where Herb Baumeister lives. Whoa, could Brian Smart be Herb Baumeister? Well, I don't know. Let's see. Hmm. So they go in through the house through a kind of dark side door, and he's basically in a garage. He notices a whole bunch of, like, really fancy antique cars, and he's just kind of like, all right, taking stock of the area. Yeah. This guy seems to have a lot of money. He gets into the house, and he's like, oh, great, I see where you're spending all your money because the house is a piece of shit on the inside. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So like in his words, it was kind of like haphazardly furnished and he could see that there was kind of like sparsely placed furniture and boxes everywhere. It was just really weird and Brian basically takes Tony in through like room after room until they get to the staircase. Right. Sounds like a house that they needed to queer eye. Very much so. So basically Brian's like, hey, come on downstairs. There's electricity in the basement. We can hang. I know. What a way to lure someone down into your basement. What a selling point. There's electricity down there. Mm -hmm. It's like, play your cards right, and there might even be running water. So he goes downstairs, and there's a big rec room at the bottom that adjoins to a pool. Sounds nice, right? Sounds gorgeous. Yeah, aside from the fact that most of the room is filled with mannequins. Terrifying. Sounds terrifying. Yeah, and the mannequins are also placed along the poolside in sexual positions. Ooh, they're like adult-sized Barbies. Mm -hmm. Like that kid that's just like hiding in the corner, making Barbies do dirty things. Oh yeah, baby, and we are talking like dozens of pool mannequins here. I mean, they run a thrift store, so probably not that conspicuous that they have mannequins, but that situation? No. Completely. And when Tony offers up a bit of shock, Brian reassures him that it's just because he gets lonely down here and they give him company. I hate it. I fucking hate it. Yeah, and then he offers Tony a drink, to which Tony declines, fair enough. Yes, that is a final girl move. Yeah, but according to Tony, Brian is like, all right, well, you don't want a drink? 
we can still party. Welcome to the mannequin pool. Want to take a dip? That's a no thank you situation, if you ask me. Yeah, and to make it even more of a no thank you situation, Brian quickly excused himself and came back into the room acting really coked out. So it's pretty safe to assume that he was also coked AF during this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So then coked up Brian comes back into the room. He's like, hey, you feeling chill? You feeling like a mannequin? Whatever. Want to go for that swim that we were talking about? Take yeah. off all your clothes. Let's make it a skinny dip. Tony's kind of like, cool, I'll hop in. Hops in the water. Brian doesn't hop in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Brian just stands out on the side of the pool while Tony is swimming laps inside, surrounded by mannequins. No. And Brian's just chatting with him about all of these topics. And Tony's just like, splish, splash. You're the guy who I think killed my friend. And I'm currently in a kill position at your home, surrounded by dolls. Right? At like, what moment would you be like, how did I get here? He's like, I wasn't even drinking. Right? Yeah, this is what curiosity gets you. Mm -hmm. This is why I don't talk to people. (laughs) Yeah. So the swimming's going real well. Everything seems cute. All of a sudden... Brian grabs a hose that's at the end of the pool, and he's like, Hey, Tony, I learned a new trick. Want to see it? Tony's like, What's your trick, Brian? Mm -hmm. And Brian basically explains to him that if you choke someone while you have sex, it feels really great, and you get a really good rush. And he shows him on his neck. He says, you just want to pinch these two veins. And he points to the carotid arteries on the neck. And he says, it's such a great buzz. You should see how someone looks when you're doing it to them. Their lips change color. That's how you can tell it's working. What the hell? Mm -hmm. He loved a makeover moment. Yeah, he had no chill. No chill. What tipped you off to that first? The mannequins? Maybe the mannequins. (laughs) I think he was getting off the rails before that, but okay. So at this point, Tony is like, ding, ding, ding. This has to be the motherfucker that killed Roger. How do I navigate this situation? Yeah. All of a sudden, Brian's like, so that trick, hey, do it to me. Wouldn't it be cool if you choked me? And before Tony can say shit, Brian strips down fully naked, lays down on a fold-out couch in the corner of the room, and tells Tony to slip the hose around his neck. And Tony obliges. Right. And while Tony is starting to choke this guy out, he starts masturbating. Lovely gal. Totally. Tony was just kind of like, all right, well, as long as you're not killing me and I'm the one choking you, I guess I will play along. And at this time, Tony was also kind of feeling like this probably wasn't Brian's first time at the rodeo. Mm -hmm. So he was like, okay, this guy's not going to freak out on me. This is probably his whole sexual shtick. Right. It's his kink. Yeah, so problem is, Tony is just being a little bit too placating in this moment because the tables end up turning. And suddenly, Tony is the one with the hose wrapped around his neck. Oh, mama. Yeah, the rhythm is going to get you, baby. So Tony is lying there, and he's getting choked out, and he's kind of like, okay, well, not the best move. How do I get out of this situation? And he does the bright thing. He pretends like he passes out. Smart. Yeah. And suddenly he feels Brian ease up. Brian whispers Tony's name to him to kind of be like, hey, Tony, are, are you alive? 
And after a moment of no response, Brian starts shaking Tony. He thinks he's killed him. Suddenly, Tony opens his eyes and grins, and Brian gets really pissed off, and he's like, girl, you scared the shit out of me. You know you can die doing this. There have been accidents. What he's not saying is there have been accidents at this very mannequin pool. Mm-hmm. And what he's also not alluding to is the fact that he wasn't dead was the accident. Yeah, basically, he's trying not to be like, oh, damn, I wish that you were dead because I could add you to my collection. Yeah. So Brian's just kind of in a daze. He's kind of like, okay, that didn't work out as planned. Luckily, he's also really super fucking coked out. And I mean, luckily for Tony. Yeah. Because basically, Brian is just in such a daze that none of this worked out that Tony's just like, it's okay. Maybe we can just go to bed. And Brian, whose speech was kind of slurring at this point, was just like, sure, why not? Let's go to bed. Right. So the horror movie continues. Yeah. They go to bed. What the hell? By the time Brian, a.k.a. Herb Baumeister, is asleep, Tony is like, cool, well, if anything, let me get up, find this guy's ID, and then I can just fucking book it. Yeah. So he gets up and he goes down through the house and he starts to case out the joint a little bit. He looks around and in the dark house, because like, let's remember, he only came in through the side door and went down into the pool. Right. He notices that there are children's toys around. He notices that this looks to be a family man's house. And then he's lucky enough to come across, quote unquote, Brian's pants. Right. Now he looks in Brian's pants and he finds a wallet in there. And wouldn't he fucking know, as soon as he's trying to get the wallet out of the pants, he hears rustling coming from the upstairs. Mama, no, get out. Yeah, so he dropped the pants, pretended he was using the washroom. Brian came out and checked. Everything was fine. He gets through the night and then ends up convincing Brian the next morning to drive him back home. Wait, so he just fucking stayed there? Well, I guess he was in the middle of nowhere. Where would he go? Yeah, there was basically nothing he could do as he's dropping him back off at the 501 club brian looks at tony and is like hey you're a good sport you really know how to play okay yeah and then he just like leaves him there and the two of them don't see each other again after that tony goes to the police and is like so do you want to hear a story gals right story time mm-hmm. let's talk about this creepy guy that has mannequins in the pool and tried to strangle me yeah wouldn't you love to know so the problem was tony didn't exactly know where this guy lived so he had told virgil vandegriff all this stuff he kind of approximates that the house was probably just outside marion county which is where indianapolis is Mm -hmm. the good thing is that our girl tony had been thinking when he was saying goodbye to brian he made plans to meet with brian the following wednesday so this gave virgil an in the following wednesday unfortunately tony goes to club 501 Brian stands him up. Now, at this point, it's August. All of this information is just rolling in. The previous month, Virgil started to believe that maybe there was a serial killer at foot. At this point, he's like, I fucking well know that there is a serial Mm -hmm. killer at foot. And I also know that this is way more than I can handle alone. So instead of just going to the police indirectly, he finds a way to get to Mary Wilson, who is the woman that was conducting this kind of like police task force. Yes. Go straight to the source. 
divorce. That's what you do. Cut out the bullshit. Exactly. So at the time, she was looking into the disappearances of 20-year-old Richard Hamilton, 21-year-old Johnny Bayer, 28-year-old Alan Livingston, and a few other gay men who had gone missing in Indianapolis, ranging back to the early 1990s. Right. She is stoked to hear all of his information. They start putting their heads together. They're like, we need people to go out into the gay bars in the area and be on the lookout for this Brian guy, including our girl Tony Harris, because he knows what the guy looks like intimately. Right. Now, at this time, in 1994, Save-A-Lot, Herbert Baumeister's store, was really starting to take a nosedive. Everything was starting to fall down around him. His marriage with Julie was starting to break apart. She had been threatening divorce because she was just tired of his bullshit, tired Mm -hmm. of no good sex, all that kind of good stuff. Herbert starts to act like a complete mega douche to all of his employees at Save-A-Lot. So all of this shit is just being aired out in the public for everybody to see. Right. So he's clearly unhinged and just kind of flying off of the rails. Welcome to his undoing. So shit's not good for Herbert. Mary and Virgil are working together and getting closer and closer day by day. They're trying to figure out who Brian Smart is. Right. Now, about a year and a half after the Tony Harris incident, Herbert Baumeister basically thinks that things have cooled down enough for him to re-enter the gay community. He goes down to a bar called the Varsity Lounge on the night of August 29th, 1995. That night... Tony Harris just happened to be at the Varsity Lounge, and he happened to notice our good friend Brian Smart from the mannequin pool. So he's basically like, oh, you're the bitch. Okay. So this time he re-engages with Brian Smart. He's like, hey, remember me? I'm the one that knows how to play. Yeah. They chat a bit. They go on their separate ways. He kind of watches him from the other side of the bar for the rest of the night. And then at the end of the night, when Brian goes out to his car, Tony watches him, writes down a hella accurate description of what the car is, what it looks like, and what the license plate number is. The next morning, he gets up, Tony calls Mary Wilson and Virgil Vandegrift and tells them all of the information, and they literally just fucking cheered on the phone. Goddamn, this is some vigilante justice in action. Exactly. So, plate number 75237A belonged to our good Judy Herbert R. Baumeister, a.k.a. Brian Smart of Westfield, Indiana. When they looked into his home, it was a property called Fox Hollow Farms. Right. Which, if we remember, was kind of partially what Tony had seen on the sign when he was turning into the farm. So with this little bit of information, they're just kind of like, okay, this is 100% our guy. So the police start closing in on Herbert Baumeister. In fact, Mary Wilson and her boss, Lieutenant Thomas Green, go down to the Washington Street Save-A-Lot location that Baumeister was working at on November 1st, 1995, mm-hmm. and they start quoting questioning him on what's going on. Like, they come in, there's no bullshit, there's no, like, oh, hey, uh, is there a taillight out on your car? No, they're just like, hey, uh, what's up? Have you been killing gay men? We've got a lot of intel on you, and it's seeming really spicy. Right. Yeah, they're just like, so, you're a suspect, we want to search your home, we pretty much have to search your home. What's going on? He completely refuses to cooperate. Of He's course. just like, yeah, this isn't suspicious at all. Tells them that any further communication has to come 
through his lawyer. Classic. Yeah, and Mary described him in that moment, like in a later interview, as being nervous beyond belief, and she said that he was one of the weirdest guys she had ever met. Sure. Yeah, believe it or not, the guy who phantom pees on people's desks is a little bit of a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. So, basically, when Herbert Baumeister refused to let them look in his home, the police go to his wife, Julie, and she's also like, yep, I'm gonna stand by my man, even though she was kind of having a rocky period with yeah. them, she probably just didn't want to have to dust. Like, I'm I'm there with you, girl. Right. She didn't do the dishes. She didn't make the beds. You know, the garbage hadn't been taken out yet that day. I well, get it. Yeah, no, I completely hear you. It's like if anybody comes over to our apartment and is like, hey, I just w- was in the neighborhood, wanted to pop by and say hello, I'd be like, well, a good fuck you to you as well. <laughs> All right? You're not supposed to see my dust. Mm-mm, no, girl. I want it to look like nobody lives here. Yeah. That's my kind of home. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, it kind of stands still for a moment until June 1996. Julie has enough of Herbert's bullshit, and she's finally like, you know what? I want a divorce. And on June 23rd, she calls up her lawyer, and she's like, you know what? Remember how the police wanted to search my home? Let them search it, bitches. (laughs) I'm out. Yes, mama. Full-on reservoir dogs just like lights a cigarette and tosses it over his shoulder and <laughs> lets that motherfucker burn. She just opens the door and she's like, come on in, the door is open when you get here. Oh yeah, because then she takes the opportunity to call Detective Mary Wilson up and she's like, by the way, let me tell you about some bones that my son found in the backyard at one point. Right. Yeah, that medical skeleton. So a team goes down, they end up going through the entire 18-acre estate while Herbert is on vacation. Yeah. Doesn't even know it's fucking happening. Nope. You enjoy your time away, bitch. It's gonna be the last time away mm-hmm. until you get put away. Exactly, because when they start looking through the estate, they see the pool mannequins. They see the interior of the house, which Tony was basically able to describe to a T. And then when they go digging further in the backyard around the area where Eric found the bones, they end up coming across the remains of 11 men. Shit. Yeah. Now, at first they thought it was about eight or nine, but DNA profiling later identified 11 different profiles. But it was enough to nail Herbert Baumeister to the fucking wall. Except when Herbert found out that there was a warrant out for his arrest, he hopped in his car, he went over to Canada. In fact, he went to Ontario to the Pinery Provincial Park on Lake Huron near Grand Bend and shot himself in the head. What? Yep, that coward motherfucker went up to Canada and (gasps) killed himself. What the fuck? We don't want you up here, bitch. No, get your bad juju out of here. Mm -mm, Not in my backyard. So, in his suicide note, he describes that his failing marriage and his failing business were the reasons that he killed himself. Mm. At no point did he confess to the murders of the men that were found in his backyard. He just glazed over that. Sure. Insignificant. Yeah, instead, in the final words of the three-page note, he basically goes on to say that he's about to eat a peanut butter sandwich, which was his favorite snack, and then quote-unquote go to sleep. Now, the evening before Herbert killed himself, a Mountie actually stopped him to see why he was sleeping in his car under a nearby bridge. Herbert told the Mountie that he was merely a tourist passing through the area, just grabbing a little bit of rest. Oh my god, and I'm sure he was just looking up at the sky the entire time. Such a beautiful 
beautiful day today. It's very bright. Totally. A lovely day for mannequins. Ugh. So the Mountie also noticed Herbert was kind of using what looked to be like a bag of videotapes as a pillow, which he kind of clocked as odd. Uh-huh. And he's not alone on that because why the fuck would Herbert Baumeister be traveling around with a bag full of videotapes? Yeah, why would you vacate with a bunch of videotapes? Unless you recorded your crimes. Unless you recorded your crimes, mm-hmm. which that sick fuck totally would. And probably dumped the tapes before he killed himself in some fucking gorge in a national park. You know how it is. So those fucking tapes are probably just chilling somewhere in our motherfucking country? Yeah, it's our problem now. Great. I like to imagine that it's like his home porno stash. You Uh know, like his self-tapes. Yeah. You know there was one tape in there called Herbie Fully Loaded. Yeah. Come on. There's got to be at least one of him pissing on the desk. Oh, my God. Totally. Okay. We'll talk about this later. <laughs> yeah. So, like I said, Herbert Baumeister suspected of killing 11 men. They've only been able to identify eight of them. They were Johnny Bayer, who was 20 years old, Alan Wayne Broussard, who was 28 years old, Roger A. Goodlett, who was 33 years old, Richard D. Hamilton, who was 20 years old, Stephen S. Hale, who was 26 years old, Jack Jeff Allen Jones, who his age got cut off. I'm sure he's not three years old. Oh, my God. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, Johnny's notes say he's three years old. I'm going to go against my notes right now. Yeah. And Michael Kiern, who was 46 years old. They're all the victims from Indianapolis. And then there's also Manuel Resendez, who was 31 years old from Lafayetteville. So these eight men were all gay. They were all reported missing between 1993 and 1996. A lot of them, people either thought had just like run away from town or whatever, because again, it's the 90s. Who takes crimes against queer people seriously? Right. Not the cops. At least not before. It's like way too fucking late. Exactly. And then they're like, well, if it was anything, it's probably gay panic. Put it to bed. Right. Yeah. So that is the shitty legacy of Herbert Baumeister. He was a desk pisser. He was a killer. He was a horrible douche in general. And according to a lot of ghost hunters, he left a little bit of an imprint on Fox Hollow Farms. Bitch. Which we can talk about another day, but I will say, I first heard about this case through the paranormal happenings that happen at Fox Hollow Farm. It's a little bit of a famous spot now. Shit. Yeah, (gasps) so a lot of people that have lived in the home since Herbert Pool Mannequins Baumeister have reported paranormal activity, but like I said, maybe there will be a part two someday. Maybe just maybe. Foreshadow. Mm Mm-hmm. A heavy-handed foreshadow. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, holy fucking shit. That story was crazy. And that fucking motherfucker... I hate it when people don't really see the justice. Like, everybody knows... Everybody knows. Totally. And it's like, we all know why you drove up to Canada on your vacay. Like, let's be real about this girl. Yeah. It wasn't because your marriage was failing. It's because you were failing. Hard. So hard. Look at yourself, girl. All right. Well, that's my story. And I'm sticking by it. Is <laughs> you can't take this from me. You can have a mama. That was an intense story. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Well, Tyler, I guess we're at that time to answer the age-old question. What did you learn today? Mannequins, in any context, other than being in a store displaying products, are terrifying. 
fair enough. Yeah. And, you know, probably the biggest red flag I could ever imagine. Like, who collects mannequins? Like, does anybody know anybody who collects mannequins? If you know somebody that collects mannequins, let us know so that we can tell you to get out, girl. Yeah, there's some advice you didn't ask for. Disconnect from your friends with mannequins. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, this week I learned if the artist says don't touch the work, don't touch the work. If you're supposed to wear 3D glasses during your performance, (laughs) wear those 3D glasses. Don't fuck with the practical effects at a seance. It's not for you to meddle with. No, ma'am. It's just there for you to consume and not question. Welcome to the theater. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, everybody. If you enjoyed the show, you can get bonus content. Did you know that? We've got mini episodes. Mm, Wouldn't you like a mini episode? Mm, Wouldn't that be nice (laughs) of us? Mm. And where can people get those mini episodes? Episodes, Johnny. Oh, well, they can go on patreon.com slash that's spooky, Tyler. Wow. There are many different tiers that you can sign up for and get a whole bunch of cool, spooky shit. Cool. I know, right? I'm such a great salesperson. Totally. If you're looking for a completely free way to support the show, you can also leave us a rating or a review wherever you're listening. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, and I think you can do that on, like, Stitcher and Spotify and Google Pie and all that kind of stuff, you know, whatever. Yeah, man. Whatever. Now, if you want to connect with us on the regular, you can follow us on our social media platforms. We have Twitter, which is at that spooky pod, and we have Instagram, which is also at that spooky pod. And on Instagram, particularly, we share lots of show notes about each and every episode, so you can go there and check it out if you want to see pictures of these spirit guides. That's where you're going to find them. And just like good millennials, we keep it chock full of memes. Yes. You're welcome. You can also hop over to thatspooky.com if you want to read show notes, listen to episodes, look at photos that relate to the episodes. You can do so much there that you probably can't even begin to comprehend the extent of this website's functionality. It's it's truly the 21st century. I sometimes lose sleep about our website. It's that impressive. Yeah. As always, if you have any spooky stories you'd like to share with us, you can send those to us at thatspooky.com. Spookypod at gmail.com. You can also just send us an email if you have something to say, you want to say hi, whatever. We've had some spooky stories come in and we want more. Yeah, we're collecting them and someday we're going to make a hair doll out of them. Yeah. Figuratively speaking. So with that said, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We love you very much. Love your new eyeshadow. Is that from the Jeffree Star Blue Blood palette? Ooh, hi, how are you? Fancy. It's gorgeous. All right, well, we love you, everyone. Kissy kisses. And don't forget, if you're going to be a bitch, be a spooky bitch. Bye. Bye. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to That Spooky early and ad free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.